Well, welcome everybody to the International History Department's <coughs> contribution to the LSE Literary Festival 2015. The panel today looks at uh, the events in and around the year 1815, uh, and in particular the question of its significance both in Europe and of course in the wider world. Our four uh, speakers today, who I'll introduce in a second, will be talking about different elements of its significance and its commemoration, both for political and diplomatic history, for the arts and cultural terms, and of course also in terms of uh, the non-European uh, colonial situation, uh, which is increasingly important uh, moving forward into the 19th century. Our four speakers today uh, come from within the Department of International History. Our first speaker, Professor Alan Scale, is a leading expert on the later Habsburg Empire. Some of you will have seen uh, the covers of two of his recent books on this subject, dealing with uh, Metternich, who I'm sure will feature in today's discussion, and of course also Rudetsky, a leading military figure. Our second speaker, Dr. Tim Hochstrasser, a specialist on the European Enlightenment and the history of ideas in the 18th century, uh, will instead be talking to us today about one of his other great passions, uh, the arts and of course the cultural reaction to uh, 1815 and the Battle of Waterloo in particular. Our third speaker, Dr. Paul Stock, Again, a specialist on this period, who has previously written on the Byron-Shelley circle and their relationship with ideas of Europe. And of course, also today, we'll be then discussing some of the literary commemoration of the Battle of Waterloo. And finally, Dr. Kirsten Schulze, who is moving back into this period, having had a, a long and, and distinguished career looking at um, Islam um, and looking at the Middle East, is now focusing very much on Southeast Asia. We'll be talking today about uh, the reaction uh, uh, to some of the European events uh, in and around her new area of interest uh, in Indonesia. In between the questions, I'll try and, uh, sorry, in between the, the various comments, I'll try and open up some of the discussion uh, with some questions to lead between the, the speakers. We should then, at the end of each of the presentations, have a little bit of time uh, for questions from you, the audience. So, with that said, Alan, perhaps you'd like to get us started discussing, I think you are, uh, Napoleon's defeat and the lead into 1815 in European terms. Uh, all right, thanks very much for coming. I uh, wrote these notes on the overnight train coming down from Inverness. Uh, still a bit tired after the journeys, but I hope it will all fit into place. Uh, what I'm going to talk about is the defeat of Napoleon and the balance of power, the, 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 the political, geopolitical situation in Europe uh, after 1815. Now, Napoleon's defeat came about on account, of course, of the military efforts of all the major European powers. Britain, of course, contributed uh, large financial subsidies to keep the other powers in the field. And, of course, she also contributed the army under the Duke of Wellington uh, in the peninsula. Austria, Russia and Prussia uh, contributed the major fighting forces. In the end... Thanks largely uh, to Napoleon's face and his own military genius uh, and his belief that he couldn't really be defeated on the battlefield, coupled with his also a belief that if peace were restored, he would have no legitimacy as a peacetime uh, ruler of France, that war alone provided his legitimacy. All of that meant that there could be no compromise between Napoleon and the Allies. So, Diplomacy, uh, which was tried all the time uh, throughout the wars, was always undermined and defeated uh, by the Emperor of the French himself, 
who was always willing to put his faith in another battle. He was finally defeated, however, by what we call the Fourth Coalition. There's some revisionists who call it something else these days, but I'm old-fashioned. I always know it as the Fourth Coalition uh, during the so-called Wars of Liberation of 1813-1814. After his retreat from Russia in 1812, with huge losses of between half a million and 600,000 men, Napoleon very quickly uh, assembled a new army of 400,000 men and still, after the defeat of the retreat in Russia, uh, controlled the whole of Europe uh, from the Atlantic right up to the Elbe. Uh, And not only did he control the whole of Europe right up to the Elbe, but in the spring of 1813, when he was attacked by uh, the Russians and the Prussians going forward from Russia, he defeated them together uh, at the battles of Lutzen and Bautzen. And it was only when Austria, the Austrian Empire, joined the coalition and took it over its military and political leadership that the Fourth Coalition was really established, which could defeat Napoleon. The leading political figure, diplomatic leader, uh, almost prime minister of the coalition, was Prince Metternich, uh, but the military leadership was under Prince Schwarzenberg as Allied Commander-in-Chief, with his Chief of Staff, General Radetzky, who produced a plan which ended up, within a matter of months, driving Napoleon right out of Germany, right out of France and the Low Countries, and forcing him to abdicate as emperor, after which he was sent to Elba. (coughs) Of course, uh, after that, uh, in peacekeeping in Paris with the French and then uh, in Vienna with all the powers, uh, really Europe was redesigned, the world was redesigned. All of this happened before, really, Napoleon reappeared from Elba, had his hundred days and was then defeated at Waterloo, uh, and a number of controversies over Waterloo, I've argued that Waterloo was really just a postscript. Uh, it wasn't all that significant. It uh, upsets people at Sandhurst, but never mind. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, it was just a postscript because had he not been defeated at Waterloo, there were still 600,000 Russians, Austrians, Prussians and others on their way uh, to defeat him, uh, even if he had struggled through and won the Battle of Waterloo. Anyway... Uh, that drew the line. Uh, Napoleon uh, was defeated and sent to Sedlina, uh, and that was the, his, the end of his role in European history. The peacemaking at Paris and Vienna uh, established a new balance of power in Europe. France uh, was reduced to the frontiers of 1790 by the Second Treaty of Paris. She was forced to pay, pay an indemnity of 700 million francs, She suffered an army of occupation, uh, which was supposed to last for five years. In fact, it only lasted for three years. And she had to return all the looted art treasures, which Napoleon had taken from various parts of Europe. She was then surrounded by enlarged buffer states, Holland uh, and Piedmont. Switzerland uh, was made neutral. Italy was given over to Austria who also presided over a new German confederation, which was supposed to be the great balance of the balance of power in Central Europe between France on one side and Russia on the other. Russia got most of Poland, almost all of Poland. Prussia and Austria got small parts, and Prussia received two-fifths of Saxony. 
Britain acquired more colonies and became mistress of the seas or confirmed her position as mistress of the seas. This new balance uh, endured roughly till 1848 and indeed beyond, although Belgium, after it revolted uh, in 1830, received independence from Holland. The major powers in the period after 1815 successfully put down revolution between them in Poland, Germany, Italy, Spain and elsewhere, uh, and they intervened regularly to keep control of their own client states, the lesser powers. The main challenger to this new balance of power was inevitably France. France, who after 1818 was allowed uh, into the European concert, yet France was bitterly dissatisfied with the 1815 settlement. She wanted to regain her natural frontiers, that is the Rhine, the Pyrenees and Belgium. She desperately wanted to restore her military prestige and hence the Bourbons invaded Spain in 1823, cleared the Egyptians from Greece after 1828 and took Algiers in 1830. Under Louis-Philippe, uh, France sent troops to Ancona in 1832 in Italy uh, and various prime ministers, liberal Frenchmen on the whole, uh, were desperate to start a European <coughs> war uh, to regain French territory. Thiers was always asking for a European war, condemned Louis-Philippe for having a rage pacifique, uh, a pacifist rage, as he called it, uh, and said that you know he could easily have won battles and wars for France on about six occasions, but the king always said no. The most famous occasion in which the king of France said no to Thiers was 1840, but he wanted to take on the whole of Europe, but then he was dismissed by the king. One reason uh, why uh, the king was so pacifist uh, may have been that he was being blackmailed by Metternich, uh, the Chancellor of Austria. The Eastern powers, after 1815, stuck pretty much together, even uh, over the Eastern question. Russia had no further territorial ambitions in Europe, and wanted a weak Ottoman Empire to survive. Metternich, uh, despite lots of hoary chestnuts and diplomatic history books, wasn't really worried about Russia. Uh, he had seen her weaknesses during the Russo-Turkish War of 1828 and the Polish Revolt of 1830. He'd also dominated her during the Congresses of Tropa and Leibach uh, in 1820-21. In fact, there was no real ideological divide in Europe. Uh, it's sometimes suggested that after 1815, or between 1815 to 1848, Europe was divided into a liberal and a reactionary camp, Britain and France on the one side, the three eastern powers on the other. In fact, the British never trusted the French. Palmerston, who went to France regularly and spoke fluent French, uh, knew all too well that people like Thiers were likely to start a European war, and so as far as he was concerned, France must always be kept in its place. Uh, and of course, by 1848, there was a huge smash between Palmerston and Giza uh, over the Spanish marriages, which left Britain fairly isolated uh, because France went to support Austria in the eastern parts. But right throughout the 1840s, over Spain, Tahiti, Morocco, all sorts of strange places, it looked as if the liberal powers would actually go to war with each other. The other thing to remember, this is the final point I want to make, 
is that the liberal powers, so called in the period 1815-14, were hardly democracies. Uh, up until 1830, more people had to vote in Hungary than had to vote uh, in Britain or France. And uh, after 1832, even then, uh, really about 3% of the people of uh, Britain had to vote, but 1% in France, Belgium, 2%. Uh, the vast majority of people couldn't vote. Thiers, the great radical in France, uh, got elected to the French Parliament with something like 200 votes. Uh, he was being elected in what was the equivalent of French pocket boroughs. So uh, you, you mustn't see it as democracy triumphing in the West and uh, bleak black reaction under Metternich and other people in the East. It simply wasn't like that. If you read my sort of revisionist study of Metternich, uh, Austria was doing very well in terms of uh, uh, being a kind of isolated area where the, she didn't have revolutions. Everybody else had revolutions. Austria didn't have revolutions. Whereas uh, you know, people were trying to murder the British cabinet. Uh, in Austria, the, the emperor and the empress could walk around the streets talking to everybody without a bodyguard and chatting to them in about six or seven different languages. Uh, it was already rather pleasant. Anyway, that's my view of the period of after the fall of Napoleon, so I'll leave it there. A follow-up question, Alan, I suppose, is, is the question to which, you know, going back to 1814, 1815, the Treaty of Paris, which you two treaties of Paris, sorry, um, and, of course, also the Congress of Vienna, I mean, does European diplomacy change after 1815 with the, the Congress, as you mentioned, Trump and Leibach? Not really. What happened was that during the Wars of Liberation, as the Allied armies uh, were coming through uh, Germany and France uh, to defeat Napoleon eventually, um, this coalition of armies also had the three monarchs of Austria, Prussia and Russia travelling with them. Mm. And they were joined by Castlereagh from the 1st of uh, January 1814, well, the beginning of January 1814. Uh, and so there was a kind of continuous sort of <laughs> congress going on inside the company of the Allied armies. And I think people got used to the idea that they could like this. And then uh, after Napoleon was defeated, the, the congress system doesn't arise out of the Congress of Vienna. Uh, it arises out of the peacemaking to do with the Second Treaty of Paris and the a renewal of the Treaty of Chaumont, a military alliance. Uh, and it's not very... It's not set out in any detail. It's not really systematised. It's just every so often, if events choose... If events so determined that people want to react by having a Congress, they can have one. And that's that. But the main thing that Congress has uh, come to determine is putting down revolution. Uh, the Congress of Vienna, what did it involve? It involved... Uh, another partition of Poland, which was just like diplomacy in the uh, 18th century, uh, the, the splitting up of Napoleon's empire, much like the carving up of the empire of Charles XII of Sweden beforehand, uh, a balance of power, which was a thing everybody was worried about, established. Uh, so although Professor Schroeder, to uh, name the person who's tried to say there's a great change in your diplomacy uh, goes on about various things I mean I think it's all bullshit basically because he says in two two main, two main theses of Schroeder is one, that there isn't a balance of power, that, that the balance of power doesn't mean a balance of power it's not a, a thing to do with force it's to do with morality and law which I don't understand uh, because everybody, nobody else understood it like that contemporary certainly didn't, everybody at the time said it was a great power carving up Europe and it was just to do with power force and troops uh, but he also says there was a, hege I, I use this sort of a dual hegemony 
between Britain and Russia. And Britain and Russia, even by themselves, could control Europe. They were so big. But the fact was, Britain wasn't interested in Europe and very rarely had anything to do with it except to Belgium. Uh, and the channel was involved otherwise. She wanted to keep out of Europe and never bothered. Uh, Russia uh, was very weak, actually, financially, militarily, in terms of administration. So far from dominating, in fact, uh, when the war broke out with Turkey in 1828, she lost, I think, about 150,000 men and had to send someone to Metternich explaining that the whole army was on the brink of collapse and that in Poland they were being defeated at one stage and could the the Russian army withdraw into Austria and could Austria feed the troops and that kind of thing. So that doesn't work. The other wonderful thing about Professor Schroeder is that he says that the, it established benign sub-hegemonies, did the Congress of Vienna. And when you look to see what he's talking about, it, these just turn out to be client states. Uh, and they're not benign because they're the places where all the great powers clash and where war is <coughs> just narrowly avoided on a number of occasions. So I don't think there's any change. Well, thank you, Alan. Let's hope Schroeder uh, tunes into the podcast. Um, <laughs> I welcome then, Tim, to uh, turn once again back to the question of 1815 and, of course, then to the artistic and cultural, indeed, ideological elements uh, of that particular year. What I want to do in this very short presentation is try to address the question, how do you commemorate victory in 1814-15? If you're an artist, if you're a patron, if you're a ruler, how do you uh, frame the right vocabulary, the right forms of expression uh, for articulating the right kind of message to reach the right kind of audience at the end of the Napoleonic uh, era? In particular, do you seek passively to represent power down towards a subject population, give them images, paintings, music, which they have to accept as a dominant set of cultural images? Or do you involve the people? Do you, do you actually build on the lessons of French revolutionary culture and propaganda and involve the people directly in, the participation, in participation in the various ceremonies of commemoration? That's the dilemma that all the rulers and artists on all sides face in this particular period. And none of them, I would argue, actually comes up with a very effective answer. The culture and politics of commemoration remains unstable throughout this period, ahead of the era of uh, fully-fledged nationalism. OK, well, what was the traditional response, if you like, to uh, victory? Well, the most traditional response, unexpectedly, came from the Bourbon dynasty, restored after Napoleon had been packed off to Elba in 1814. And when Louis XVIII entered Paris, he ordered a mass to be prepared uh, and performed for him in uh, Notre Dame, uh, commissioned from the leading uh, composer of ecclesiastical music, who'd also worked, of course, for Napoleon a great deal of the time in the preceding decade, Luigi Carabini. But this was judged by contemporaries to be an ineffective way of managing a return to Paris, because the audience in Notre Dame was, of course, simply a safe, tame constituency of Bourbon supporters. It didn't actually reach out to a wider public or generate any propaganda that could be useful to a new regime. A second way of commemorating victory is represented by a, a cantata for chorus, soloists and orchestra produced by Ludwig van Beethoven as part of the Congress of Vienna 
In November uh, 1814, uh, Beethoven uh, produced this cantata called The Glorious Moment, setting a very inglorious text uh, by uh, a Viennese poet who simply sought to praise the city of Vienna and Emperor France. Uh, The uh, cantata was performed in front of the Tsar, in front of the King of Prussia, in front of the Empress of Austria in the Redoutenzaal in Vienna, and was a great success in that audience, but was not a success when performed publicly uh, a few weeks later. Although one has to say that the audience must have had a very noisy evening on that occasion, because the other works performed were Beethoven's military symphony, Wellington's Victory, written some years earlier to commemorate the Battle of Vittoria during the Peninsular War, and also Beethoven's Seventh Symphony, three very noisy and loud and fairly long works. So that may have explained in part the relative failure uh, of the uh, evening. But I think there's a larger issue here because the work itself spoke too closely to narrow Viennese and imperial concerns and didn't actually address the concerns of the audience or the feelings and reactions of the audience to the uh, Congress uh, itself. Perhaps the composer who was most attuned to what was needed at the time and certainly most adept uh, in reacting uh, to the times was the opera composer Giacchino Rossini, Uh, who within the course of uh, 1815 managed to do a wonderful backflip from supporting uh, Italian independence early in 1815 when he wrote a piece of music, a hymn to independence, to coincide with uh, uh, Joachim Murat's uh, rebellion uh, against the Austrians uh, in uh, Italy. But then realising that he got into trouble and ended up on the wrong side of the political debate, he finished the year by writing an opera called Queen Elizabeth, uh, or Elizabeth Queen of England, um, which commemorated Elizabeth I's um, um, success in putting down all rebellions against opponents during her regime. As ever, if in trouble, reach for the Tudors uh, as a way of solving your problems and reassuring uh, your listeners that you were a loyal supporter of dynastic absolutism. So there's someone who managed to negotiate the potential shoals of political opera quite well in the year of 1815. But to try and crystallise this whole problem, I thought I'd talk in a little bit more detail about one particular event of 1815, which actually was put on by Napoleon himself and which isn't much discussed in the literature. It's the last big Napoleonic spectacle that he organised before heading off to fight the Waterloo campaign. And it attempts to bring together, in one particular festival, all of the elements of Napoleon's um, artistic uh, and uh, cultural patronage in one last throw of the dice to try and change the ideological game in his direction. The particular festival is called the Festival of the Champ de May, the Field of May, Uh, confusing, it was actually held on the 1st of June, 1815, uh, but never mind. Uh, And this, in in narrow terms, was a festival organised to commemorate the passing of a new constitution, or at least additions to the existing constitution. What Napoleon sought to do on his return to Paris uh, was to try to reattach himself to the legacy of the French Revolution, to put the imperial aspect of his rule to one side, and to present himself as the heir and fresh embodiment of the revolutionary spirit. He thought this would be a good contrast with the regime of the Bourbons, which he'd just displaced. So he 
arranged for a plebiscite to be held on uh, constitutional amendments which abolished censorship, brought in a bicameral legislature uh, and sought in many ways to revive uh, good feelings about the revolutionary uh, era. I mean, this was, I should say, a fairly cynical exercise on Napoleon's part. I mean, we have a rather wonderful letter from him written to Benjamin Constant, the liberal theorist who was tasked with devising this constitution, in which he writes as follows. The taste for constitutions, debates and speeches seems great, but in reality the multitude only wants me. <laughs> I could, with a stroke of my sword, eradicate the nobility, but then I would simply be an emperor of peasants. This is why I need a constitution. <laughs> so the ostensible purpose was to get the leaders of the political establishment to swear a public oath to the new constitution. Napoleon would make a speech celebrating the new constitution, presenting himself as the embodiment of the revolution. A mass would be said uh, by the Archbishop of Tours, who was the leading uh, clergyman uh, supportive of uh, Napoleon during the 100 days. There would then be a rededication of the eagles of the National Guard, reviving an, an earlier ceremony in the Napoleonic years, and finally a military march past. And all of this was arranged to take place on the 1st of June, uh, 1815, uh, and did so, but in a rather confused and contradictory fashion. It was held in the uh, Champ de Mars, which is, you know, for those of you who know Paris, between the Eiffel Tower and the École Militaire, and there were three particular sites. There was an altar where the clergy and the musicians were based. There was this strange pyramidal structure right in the middle of the Champ de Mars, which was where Napoleon uh, swore the oath to the new constitution, made his speech, and took the oaths uh, from uh, the political leaders. And then outside the facade of the École Militaire, there was an amphitheatre where the public gathered to see the rededication of the military eagles and to watch the uh, military uh, march past. So a long event spread out uh, throughout the day. Unfortunately, it didn't satisfy any of the constituencies at, at which it was aimed. And that seems to me to be the most interesting aspect of this whole cultural panoply. It didn't satisfy conservatives because they thought that the cause of religion had been cynically manipulated, that the Archbishop of Tours was simply being used to provide an ecclesiastical blessing for uh, a dictator's return. It didn't satisfy revolutionaries or Bonapartists either because they were horrified at all of the imperial trappings that Napoleon persisted in using. They were horrified in particular at the fact that he designed a new silk suit for himself. Here we see representation of it. They wanted to see the little corporal. They wanted to see the traditional military uniform uh, and the cocked hat. That was the emblem of Napoleon as far as the Bonapartists were concerned. They didn't want uh, all of this uh, flummery. Moreover, the political leaders were alienated because Napoleon persisted in dealing with them through a series of imperial chamberlains, treating them as underlings rather than treating them directly, and then using all sorts of possessive uh, pronouns in his speech which indicated that he regarded the empire still as his own property and so far from being a tribune of the revolution, in fact was still the emperor uh, undiluted uh, from uh, before. There was also a great cynicism about the, uh, military, uh, uh, about the military oath uh, and the oath on the Constitution. And here is a contemporary commentary on it of a rather rude nature. 
Uh, here we have Napoleon uh, holding one of the eagles uh, with the Champ de May um, inscribed on it. And he's lowered his trousers so that Marshal Ney, one of his leading generals, can kiss his backside. Uh, the text at the top is Sermon de Ney, with a pun in French on Ney's oath and what one might call a nose shake rather than a handshake, um, which is taking place uh, here. For many people, the cultural manipulation involved, however many strands there may have been to it, failed to disguise the fact uh, that this was a bankrupt regime that was grasping at all straws to try and give itself legitimacy. And it's interesting that even one of Napoleon's family remarked on the emptiness of this particular cultural spectacle. Queen Hortense, the uh, Queen of the Netherlands, Napoleon's sister-in-law, remarked afterwards that for all of the displays of affection, for all of the military uh, panoply, uh, this ceremony has done nothing to deter the evil that looms over us of prospective military defeat. So there was one of Napoleon's closest intimates, uh, unpersuaded uh, by this uh, particular uh, spectacle. Now, I don't want to go into this in any more detail. I've said enough. My thesis here today is simply that whatever the means that were available, traditional uh, or uh, French revolutionary uh, or imperial, uh, the relationship between uh, the artist, the patron, the created work and the audience is unclear at this time. There are no obvious routes to reaching an audience or getting your message across in a way that satisfies uh, both sides. And it's really only as we move on uh, into the uh, later decades of the 19th century, which my colleague Paul Scott will be talking about uh, shortly, uh, that a greater stability, I think, returns to the manipulation of these particular cultural markers. And I think I'll stop there. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, <laughs> and I'll turn this on quickly so you don't have to look at Napoleon's bottom any longer. Um, it, it strikes me that Napoleon has, um, without wishing to, to labour a, a pun here, but he definitely does have a deaf ear for culture in many respects. You know, he seems to be grabbing at whatever things are available to him, much as he does, I think, with the military situation um, uh, in, in 1814 when he returns, and essentially trying to deploy them in some way to, to gather everybody behind him, and yet they don't, they don't work together. It's, it's clear that, you know, whatever elements he's got in there will in some ways clash mm. because, in a sense, they don't really belong al alongside one another anymore. Yes. I think it's absolutely right. I mean, he knows he needs these things, but he has no interest in the detail or the application uh, himself. And he has a fairly tin ear for what people want to hear from him and uh, what they want to see. I mean, he, he, he knows that if he's going to legitimate the empire, he needs to provide structures, whether court structures or administrative structures, that will appeal to diverse constituencies. But he never puts enough effort into the detail of working that out to satisfy uh, those uh, constituencies. You know, as Alan said, you know, the remedy was to go and fight another battle if things went wrong, rather than actually think through structures or look at the administrative uh, issues uh, in, in more detail. Sorry, Paul. Oh, go ahead. I mean, I, <coughs> you apparently said that if he'd known what it was going to be like when he came back, he would never have bothered. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't think he was talking about Waterloo, he was talking about the French. I mean, he had a nice further comment on, on the role of constitutions. I mean, he, you know, he was a great one for plebiscites and a great one for generating documents. But, you know, he, say, he was said to have um, remarked to his valet um, that the ideal constitution 
was one that was short and obscure. <laughs> um, so that you could then, in the end, legitimate anything through it. You know, you would just not restrict your options in any way. Yeah, the, the choice of Constant, I think, is, is very uh, telling as well. I mean, this is a man who he is clashed with constantly from the early 19th century. Part of the reason why he purges the, the tribute, I think, in 1802. Mm. Of course, famously, has clashed with Constant's other half, Madame de Steele, mm. repeatedly and very rudely as well. So mm. Giving him some control over your bicameral legislature seems to be an act of desperation, if nothing else. Mm. But anyway, so I would say thank you very much. And uh, I've turned now again to uh, Paul Stock. Well, do you want to talk to us about the literary? Yes, actually, a little bit more broad than that. Actually, I think what I'll do is talk uh, a little bit about some of the cultural responses to Waterloo, um, particularly about how British people thought about the battle and how it was culturally represented um, in the period. I think this is made more interesting in a way by the fact that we're all we all think we're very familiar with the Waterloo narrative, if you like. Um, the fact that we think about um, British responses to the battle in terms of triumphalism and to do with celebration. When we think of the, the Waterloo Monument in Scotland, for example, um, the various painting competitions that were held immediately after the battle in which British painters could compete to uh, construct the most glorious representation of Wellington's triumph. Um, even the construction of um, Waterloo Bridge in um, 1817 and then the station which um, was constructed in the 1840s all intended to commemorate this idea that um, Waterloo was a great um, sort of national triumph um, and a cause for celebration. You know, I think that these various commemorations fit into patterns which are familiar to us from aspects of 19th century history about the rise of nationalism, for instance, or about the rise of non-monarchical state celebrations, um, even about the celebration of a certain kind of masculinity that's represented by the Duke of Wellington's um, supposedly stoic unflappability. But I think in some respects those trends can be overemphasised if we look a bit more deeply at how Waterloo was received immediately, and because there were arguments about its significance almost from the very beginning. Um, I think, I mean, for one particularly good example of this is the fact that the Duke of Wellington himself fell out with the poet laureate of the period, Robert Southey, almost immediately after the battle, because Southey wrote an article um, for a review magazine in which he claimed that effectively the battle had been won by the Prussians. And oddly enough, um, Wellington didn't agree with that view. And so there was a and it's sort of rather undignified public spat between the two of them about who had the best understanding of the significance of the battle. And if one looks at the parliamentary records, then there are quite a number of debates that parliamentarians held about how best to commemorate the battle. Should there be a statue of Wellington alone? Should there be a statue which commemorated the soldiers of Waterloo? Should there be a statue which somehow commemorated all the people who fought in the Napoleonic Wars? And at heart, I think that's a debate about the historiographical significance of Waterloo itself and whose victory it really was. It's a dispute about, if you like, historical agency and responsibility. But what interests me particularly, I think, about Waterloo is the ways in which um, it was immediately commercialised in British society. The ways in which the battle was reinterpreted almost straight away as a profit-making opportunity um, that could stand alongside and, in fact, sometimes in tension with official commemorations. And I just want to mention very briefly three different examples of that um, process. The first is the commercialisation of the battle in popular poetry. 
Now, we're not used to thinking in the contemporary world of poetry as being commercially successful. Um, but in the early 19th century, it was enormously so. I mean, uh, most of the major um, best-selling um, literary works in this period were, were works of poetry. And all three of the period's most popular poets, which is to say um, Walter Scott, um, Southey himself, and Byron, all immediately piled in with long poems about Waterloo and its significance. Now, I think in some terms those works um, they continue a very long tradition of martial commemoration in poetry that's been you know, very familiar from, from literary history. But they also show, I think, a new interest in mass-market literature which responds immediately to the events of the day. And I think here we can detect um, the development of significant literary trends. Um, so, for example, the rise of historical fiction, which would later become enormously important in Walter Scott's career in particular, but also the result of the, the initiation, if you like, or of the idea of the, the populist cash-in, effectively, that you take a popular historical event and then you immediately produce something about it which connects in some way with the public mood. And then you write about it in such a way which you think um, reflects that published mood and, and appeals to it, it effectively as a money-generating exercise. Um, uh, it upsets literary critics, I think, sometimes to hear this, but you know, a lot of these people are not necessarily writing for a sort of pure artistic purpose. They're sometimes writing to make money, and particularly in Walter Scott's and Robert Southey's case, and to some extent with Byron as well, that is very much at the heart of what they're trying to achieve in terms of what they're writing about. Another very significant commercial opportunity comes from tourism. British tourists were stunningly quick to go over the channel and look at the field of Waterloo and to view the, the site itself and also the surroundings. And that activity allowed them to engage in a number of different activities from hunting for souvenirs amidst the battle debris and indeed the, the bodies of the dead in some cases to acting out fantasies of command on towers overlooking the site. So what would happen is that um, tours were very quickly organised almost as soon as the battle had been completed and then parties of people would go over in order to view the site itself and sometimes sort of rather dubious histories were immediately rewritten. So, for example, the observational towers, which in fact had nothing to do with um, Napoleon at all and had been constructed by the King of Holland, were then assumed to have been vantage points on which Napoleon had stood and surveyed the scene. And so tourists would parade up and down these towers and then sort of look out over the field and presumably act out their Napoleonic fantasies of um, briefly being in charge of Europe. And there are also more unsavoury um, aspects to it in which tourists would actually just loot corpses that they would find in, in the battlefield and take things from... Um, from the bodies and then sort of run away with their souvenirs. And there's lots of rather sort of distastefully gleeful um, letters that are written by tourists talking about what they've managed to find on the bodies of the dead and then take away as part of some exercise in, in sort of sharing that Napoleonic, that Waterloo moment. I think what we can see here is the idea of Waterloo as something being apportioned and, and sold. And what's also significant about the way that a lot of tourists react to the battle site is that they often understand Waterloo in terms of existing aesthetic criteria, um, particularly picturesque landscape painting, but also the horror of Gothic novels. So Gothic novels were very popular in this period, and a lot of um, tourists would, if you like, um, imagine themselves as being part of a Gothic novel in experiencing this rather sort of death-strewn scene. And they would sort of, if you like, place themselves in the, um, in the role of the, the Gothic heroes that they'd been reading about in fiction. And 
the fact of this public participation in the Waterloo experience brings me to my, my third and final example of Waterloo commercialisation, um, panoramas. Um, panoramas were very popular forms of late 18th century and early 19th century exhibition. Um, there's an image of one on the, on the screen right now, but what they are essentially is giant um, cylindrical rooms painted with enormous large-scale scenes inside. And visitors would enter the structure. You can see some people on the, on the left-hand side of the image going into this, um, this um, structure. And the approach would be quite well controlled, so there would be lots of dark lighting, and then you'd step out into the, the large room in order to maximise the effect. And the idea, of course, was that people would go to these places and then imagine themselves as being in the desired location. So a lot of the most popular um, panoramas were usually of foreign cities, um, places like Venice or St Petersburg for people who couldn't afford or were otherwise prevented from travelling there. Um, But quite a few were of contemporary or historical events. And the panorama at Leicester Square put on a Waterloo display within 18 months of the battle, which is very quick when you think about the amount of effort that it would have gone to paint this um, this enormous spectacle. This panorama was, in fact, repeatedly shown into the 1840s um, and even, in fact, inspired other panoramas of the same scene up and down the country. There was another very popular one in Glasgow in which um, some veterans of Waterloo were manipulated into participating um, by being told that they would have free tickets, but they should only turn up to claim their free ticket if they were in full military uniform. Not realising, of course, that that meant they then became part of the spectacle um, rather than um, spectators themselves. And then they were sort of invited to parade around in front of the painting in a rather undignified way that um, presumably none of them had expected before accepting the invitation. I think what's interesting about the, the panoramas is that they allowed ordinary people to experience something approximating the Battle of Waterloo themselves, or at least a version of it which was acceptable for public consumption. And what that means is that, as with tourism and the Gothic novels, art and reality are overlapping again in our understanding of how this um, phenomenon was understood by, um, by contemporary British people. But also, significantly, the panoramas were enormously commercially lucrative, and they allowed the repackaging of the Waterloo experience in a way that was seen to be appropriate and fitted in with a kind of commercialised, triumphalist narrative that... Um, the particular entrepreneurs who set them up um, wanted to share. So I think then in that sense that Waterloo holds a wider cultural significance in this period um, for Britain. I mean, as Alan's rightly talked about, there's a, there's a, a very sort of significant debate about what political impact Waterloo had, what military impact it had, and whether or not it was significant at all. But I think in cultural terms that it has a very great degree of significance because people assumed in the period that that significance was present. And it also allows us, I think, an interesting avenue into the histories of popular literature, tourism and museum culture. And Waterloo itself essentially facilitates new directions in all three of those cultural aspects. Thank you. I'd like to say, as somebody who's been a tourist in Waterloo site, I can confirm the official record. I neither looted anybody, (laughs) nor did I stand on the land mound and imagine in some kind of fantastic way my own leadership of Europe. Um, Of course you do. (laughs) (laughs) The official record here. Anyway. I mean, you mentioned the the, the poems, Mm. obviously also, of course, the lack of perhaps any artistic merit to them. I mean, was there kind of any danger then of uh, oversaturation that people would just say, well, it's, it's another Waterloo poem? 
Yeah, I think that was a danger, and certainly that opinion was expressed by a number of viewers in the period that they were having to read another poem on the same topic. Um, the other thing that makes these items difficult to um, assess from a distance is that the literary merit of them is not always particularly high, and that they often are very repetitious, and um, they sort of work through a number of well-worn themes that become quite clichéd quite quickly. And that was something that was acknowledged um, by contemporaries. And the longer ones had rather mixed fortunes. Walter Scott famously did very badly with his poem on Waterloo because it was felt to be completely without nuance. And what he was interested in doing in that poem, actually, was in celebrating the elements uh, of Scottish victory in Waterloo, which was part of a wider cultural project that he had about suggesting the, sort of the Britishness, I suppose, of, of dual English and Scottish endeavours. And a lot of reviewers reacted very badly to that agenda, feeling that it was rather crass and, and overstated. Um, Southey's work was slightly more popular, but is, it's a very bizarre poem, actually, because it's sort of cosmic on its scale. It's talking about Waterloo as a kind of clashing of the, of the sort of heavenly forces somebody who's read the Iliad one too many times and is then <laughs> trying to rewrite it in a modern context, in a sense. I think what's very interesting is that the, but the most popular poem that's about Waterloo is actually Byron's one in, in Child Harold Three, which is about a number of different things but also encompasses a, a, a discussion about Waterloo. And that's significant, I think, because it's both the most nuanced and the most popular, yeah. which I think is interesting and, and dispels some of the more ready clichés we might think about populist literature and what that involves. Because I think that Byron himself is actually unsure as to how to understand Waterloo as an event. You know, is it the end of something? Is it the beginning of something? And also because he was very sympathetic to Napoleon personally, he's conflicted about what he thinks about the victory. And I think what's interesting is that that obviously resonated with the public to some degree because lots of people bought this and read it and continued to read it, which suggests a greater degree of nuance and understandings of, of Waterloo than we might suppose simply from looking at Waterloo Bridge, for example. Uh, talking about um, tourists picking things up off the battlefield, uh, there was a phenomenon called Waterloo Teeth, uh, and apparently uh, the teeth of dead soldiers uh, were taken and recycled and sold as false teeth uh, to people at the time, and so Waterloo Teeth were actually widely distributed. <laughs> well, that bombshell. Um, <laughs> We turn now to a, a, a very different place at the same time, of course, and, and uh, Dr. Schultz will, will tell us a little bit about uh, the situation beyond continental Europe. Right. Um, I want to move this outside of Europe um, because you do have impact outside of Europe, and I'm going to focus on a very specific place, and I've got some maps to put up with it, um, which is Ambon, which at the time was in the Dutch East Indies. And just to sort of see where we are map-wise, but also in terms of historical context, I'd like to add a couple more dates, um, so casting it back slightly more. Um, the first European entry into the area that you see on the map marked as Moluccas, the red area, um, was in the context of the competition, the quest for spices in 1511, and it came with the Portuguese. Soon followed by the Dutch going in, 1599, where they tried to um, establish some treaties with local rulers to squeeze the Portuguese out. By 1605, both um, the sort of key middle area of Ambon and the northern area of Tidora came under control of the Dutch East India Company, the VOC. 
And in 1798, the VOC goes bankrupt, and these territories are put under Dutch government control. So they become a formal colony. So that brings us right up to where we start seeing events happening in Europe. Um, and we have two parallel things happening that are important for this part of the world. Uh, one is that in 1795, you have the so-called Q letters, which are by William V, Prince of Orange, who was residing in Dutch House in Kew Palace at the time, where he asked the governors of these Dutch colonial uh, possessions, um, including um, Ambon, Ambuin, as well as um, parts of Sumatra, as well as Malaccas and some other areas, to effectively hand over their colonies to the English for safekeeping. So this is happening at one end. Um, at the other end, you see in the context of the Napoleonic Wars, the um, invasion of, of the Netherlands, we see um, the Dutch were out in the East Indies um, siding with Napoleon, mainly through the um, person of General Dendels, who starts implementing very much this little Napoleonic vision um, in, in that part of the world. Um, and then we see a sort of slightly belated um, interest by the English in these colonies kicking in, which then results um, in a sort of almost formal transfer of, of governance in the area of, um, of Ambon to the English in 1810, and they stay until um, 1815. Right, so I want to talk a little bit about the impact that this has, um, um, because it's very, very interesting Right on the back of this decision to, in the wake of Napoleon's defeat, to hand territories back to the Dutch, we see our first anti-colonial rebellion emerging, the Patimura Rebellion in 1817. So I really want to start off by talking a bit about the rebellion to um, sort of give you a feel for what this is like, and I'm going to assume that most of you don't know an awful lot about this area. Um, so let me zoom in map-wise um, where we're going. It's this area around Ambon, so you see a couple of islands here, Ambon, um, Seram on the top, over you see Haruku um, and Saparua and Usalaut. Um, so when I talk about Ambonese, I'm actually referring about the whole area because it's sort of seen as a cultural area. Also in terms of governance, this was an area that was governed um, from um, Ambon Island um, through um, a sort of local Dutch governor. Um, so that's the area that I'm talking about. In terms of the rebellion, I want to zoom in even further. I want to zoom in on the island of Saparua, because that's where it all starts. So let's talk a bit about the rebellion. The, in the wake of the defeat of Napoleon, we again see a bit of a time lag, because you need to get from one part of the world to the other part of the world. Um, we see on the 8th of March, 1817, four Dutch ship, ships sailing into the Bay of Ambon. Um, two Dutch commissioners, Middlecope and Engelhardt, expressed massive disappointment when they arrived that they weren't cheering Ambonese crowds to welcome them back. Um, and in fact, it gets worse because they start hearing rumors that there are people meeting secretly and they start talking about um, some kind of an opposition to a return of Dutch rule in this area. Nevertheless, we have a formal ceremony, a flamboyant ceremony of transfer of power, the English pull out um, and effectively wash their hands of what's going on. There is, for example, um, at the beginning of this rebellion, an appeal by the Dutch for help. There are British um, ships in the area 
um, yet they don't respond. So they are washing their hands of this um, situation. So after this transfer of um, power, the governor of Amboina decides to order the uh, cutting down of a lot of the trees in the area because he wants to make some money and he thinks exporting the wood is a good way to go about this. Um, he wants to export it all via Ambon Harbor. And in order to transport the trees from the various surrounding islands, he wants to use a, a Moluccan type of, um, of boat, the Orambai, um, to transport these trees first back to Ambon and then from Ambon, obviously, to other areas. And this is where he sort of runs up um, against local opposition much more concretely than some secret meetings going on. Most of the um, population, as you could imagine, are fishermen. Um, and if you're going to start using these boats to transport trees, they're not going to be working and making a living and not going to be able to feed their families. So we have a direct conflict here. Yet even worse, on the island of Saparua, there was a new resident, Vandenberg, who took over and he was fairly inexperienced and he goes in with an iron fist policy. He forces the population to cut down the trees to build more boats so that more wood can be transported. So not surprisingly, we see opposition starting to emerge here. On the 3rd of May, um, in this area, Haria, in the woods and the jungle around it, um, we see a number of men uh, meeting um, and they are very upset about the, um, the wood business and the, the, the trees and the boats, but they're also upset that there are rumors going around that um, the Dutch are now going to try to press local population into military service, and that means removing them from the area of Amman to the center of the Dutch East Indies, which is Batavia, so quite far away, especially if you have families that you're going to need to leave behind. Um, so they start talking about this. Um, and they start to form uh, opposition to this. On the 9th of, meeting, they, uh, 9th of May, they meet again, and they select a leader, a man by the name of Thomas Matulesi. Um, and on the 14th of May, they start mobilizing the population. Um, and on the 15th of May, we have the Patimura rebellion breaking out. Um, not surprisingly, in light of the issue over the trees and the boats, um, the first thing that the rebels do <coughs> is they go to the harbour and they take over the, the Orambai boats um, and start to assert their authority there. We then see a bit of a standoff because the local resident, the Dutch resident, decides to go down to assert his authority and it doesn't work. Um, he's surrounded by um, these rebellious uh, people. They pull him down from the horse, they kill his horse... He only survives courtesy of the intervention of a religious teacher who says, no, this is wrong, you can't just go ahead and kill the man. He eventually makes his way back to the fort, Fort Dostedo, where he's based, um, and then tries to call for help. That doesn't work. The messenger carrying this call for help gets um, captured, um, and so there's for a long time um, uncertainty over what is going on. In the meantime, the rebels then, um, on the 16th of May, surround the fort, they attack the fort, they get one of the people to go inside and infiltrate it, um, and they eventually take over the fort and they slaughter the inhabitants. At this point, we see um, the surrounding areas, Ambon, starting to catch on that there is an uprising going on, um, mainly because we see the uprising spreading. It spreads from Saparua to Nusalau to Haruku to the south coast of Seram, and then it ends up in Ambon. So it's spreading to all the other areas. The Dutch try 
to resolve this. We have an attempt at trying to suppress it militarily, which doesn't work. Um, there are lots of sort of um, stupid mistakes being done, like landing Dutch troops in the wrong part um, of, of the, the territory where they then um, end up running into issues with the boats, where they then immediately end up in um, rebel-held territory and they get slaughtered. There is um, a brief attempt um, during June and July to try to negotiate an end to um, the rebellion. In the meantime, they're waiting for ships from Batavia. Um, and towards the end of July, on the 25th of July, we see the second expedition um, going out, and we see lots of fierce fighting, and we have reinforcements finally from Batavia, and that tips the balance. Um, on the 30th of, December, uh, of September, these reinforcements arrive, um, and we then sort of see a reverse unraveling of the rebellion, um, where we see core areas like Amman, the last one to join the rebellion, being the first one to be taken out. That's our core area for the Dutch. Um, Saparua continues um, until the 8th of November, when the Dutch then take over the area of Porto and Haria. Um, Nusa Laut hangs in there until the 10th of November, um, and then there's a surrender by one of the local Rajas. Um, and on the 13th of November, the leader, um, Thomas Matulesi, is taken another picture, artist impression of what this battle looked like. Now, before we look at the causes, ask, introduce the two, two key characters, one that we've already heard about and one other because I can't resist. Um, I want to give you a little bit of background. Why Thomas Matulesi, who's also known as Captain Patimura as a result of this the rebellion, um, he's an interesting guy. He was born in 1783 in Puerto Saparua, his father was a fisherman, so he has a direct link into one of the key grievances. Um, he's, if we sort of look at religious background, a Dutch Reformed Protestant, he's a Calvinist. Um, and during the period when the British were in charge of this area, he volunteered for the auxiliary course, where he reached the rank of sergeant. Um, he has capacity. He has leadership capacity. He has military capacity. He knows how to organize troops. And he left this auxiliary course as soon as the Dutch came back. So again, we're back to issues. Um, we don't know an awful lot more about him. He's believed to have been roughly around 32 years old at the time. Um, and we do know that once he is captured um, and the rebellion has come down, he is executed on the 16th, December 1817. As I said, I wanted to introduce two people. And I always feel that... I'm definitely in the minority sitting here, and women are also the minority in history. So I want to introduce a female, and not just any random female. Um, Christina Marta, she's the daughter of the Raja of Nusalaut. She joined in this rebellion actively. She was not providing food and things that we might think a woman at that time was doing. She was around 16 to 18 years old. Um, in fact, the Dutch documents about this revolt talk about her as more fanatical than the men. Um, she was in the battlefield. She was at the forefront in her part. And in the end, when we get to the end of the, the um, Patimura Rebellion, she's one of 39 rebels who are designated as sort of in that sort of second level there. Not the top key leaders. The top key leaders are executed. But she's in that next level of so dangerous that they can't be left on the territory. So she is loaded onto 
um, a ship, the Evertsen, along with the other 39 rebels, and destined to be taken to Batavia. Her fight doesn't end there. She goes on a hunger strike. She dies on the 1st of January, 1818, and she's chucked overboard. So those are sort of one hero, one heroine of the story. Now I want to now go to this question of why did this revolt happen? And there are really sort of two angles where we need to go back to our broader historical context. Um, and the first one is the angle of opportunity. The Dutch had suffered in the Napoleonic Wars. They were struggling politically and economically. So there was a window of opportunity. They were perceived as weak, and the rebellion leaders thought it was time to sort of push the colonizers out. That's our first angle. The second angle is the whole dynamic of this safeguarding exercise, turning from Dutch colony to English colony back to Dutch colony. Um, and the dynamic that that gives. And this is a really interesting one, so I'm going to spend a bit more time on that. Um, I haven't given you much detail about this, so let me fill in. 1810, General Bryant Martin was sent to Maluku to deal with the situation, to safeguard the area of Amboina. As soon as the English entered Maluku, in a very sort of traditional way, they set about securing military positions. So it was mainly sort of a military exercise at the time. They immediately set up to um, establishing this local auxiliary force that Thomas Matulesi signs up to. Um, and they then proceed to govern the area indirectly, very much in line with how they govern, govern other, their own colonies. Um, formerly, it came under the authority of the East India Company, headquartered in Calcutta, led by Governor General Lord Minto. Um, Minto doesn't have an awful lot of influence over what happens on the ground. It was very much indirect rule. But there's one thing that has a massive impact, and that is the introduction of liberal economic practices. Um, the English came, they abolished the monopoly system that the Dutch had practiced up until that point. They abolished the practice of corvée labor, just rounding up people from the villages and making them work for you for free. They abolished the land tax, and they also abolished something called hongi duty, where they would, again, round up people, and they would use these people, put them on boats, and they would then go to neighboring islands to destroy areas that were in violation of the monopoly practice. So there were areas where you were allowed to plant things like cloves and nutmeg, and everything that was outside of those areas would be destroyed in order to keep the prices up. And so you would get local people to go and burn down trees, cut down trees. So the very... Uh, was, was, was a, a, an onerous practice, but it was also one that was very much disliked at that local level. The Ambonese loved the new liberal policies. It put them more in charge of commerce, and it allowed them to sort of control things and plant things and, and make a living in a sort of decent way without being pushed around by the Dutch. So that's sort of our starting point. The switch over when the Dutch come back um, is seen as being almost like a double whammy. It is seen as much worse because it comes on the back of policies that were preferred. Um, and the Dutch coming in, especially when we look at the resident on Saparua, the inexperienced one who goes in with an iron fist policy in order to, to control the area, um, is seen again as much worse in comparison. Now, if we look at... Um, the way that the Dutch at the time and the locals at the time talked about the causes of the rebellion, we see a couple of interesting themes coming up. Um, 
the Dutch are divided. There is at the centre of governance in places like Batavia and also places back, back home in the Netherlands uh, a lot of talk about the uh, incompetence of some of the local, um, the local administrators like the resident Vandenberg. Um, local sources... Um, local Dutch sources, especially if we look at um, those two commissioners that arrived early, Middelkop and Engelhardt, uh, they get some of the blame, but they in turn actually blame um, Batavia for getting lack of support and lack of direction and the fact that when the rebellion broke out, it took forever for the reinforcements to come. Special sort of um, place from a local perspective um, is what some of the, the, the historians have called the Dutch Reign of Terror. And this refers back to the period right before the English came, that period where Dendels was in charge. Uh, and they see it was that, that switch over from the Dendels period, the Reign of Terror, um, which was exemplified by um, a sort of um, step back from um, supporting religious institutions. Um, what they would flag up most would be the non-payment of religious teachers. And here we're talking Christian teachers rather than Muslim ones. Um, but that is what, what stands out all the more because it's followed by this British interregnum with the liberal policies. Um, at the very sort of micro level, we have a document that comes out of the, the rebellion um, where the 20 leaders of the rebellion from Sabarua and Nusalaut um, issue a declaration which is known as the Haria Declaration, um, and they set out their grievances in that declaration, um, and they list five. Um, they talk about the Dutch force forcing young men to join the army and then sending them to Batavia, mm -hmm. the Dutch forcing the population to work without pay, Dutch forcing the population to supply the Dutch with fish, chicken, coffee, and cooking oil at very low prices or no price at all. Um, the Dutch forcing them to supply corvée labor, to harvest nutmeg trees and make salt. And then the Dutch wanting to dismiss the school teachers and destroy the Christian faith. This is a really interesting one, this last one, this last charge. Because you would think that a local Christian population and a colonial ruler that is Christian wouldn't really have these issues. That you would find the issues far more with the other part of the population, the Muslim population. Um, but they actually you know, cast this rebellion through a Christian lens. Um, and central to that was Psalm 17, um, where they talk about, uh, they use Psalm 17 to portray the Dutch as wicked oppressors um, from which the population needs liberation. Um, and that irritated the Dutch immensely that it was cast through that lens. <coughs> I want to now sort of pick up with some of the points that were made earlier about commemoration. And commemoration of this rebellion is somewhat problematic. Um, first of all, I think the obvious point to make is that when this rebellion is commemorated, the Napoleonic Wars, the whole sort of British interregnum kind of sort of disappear out of the picture. Um, it's cast narrow rather than really broad. Um, but we have two angles, and really... One is a local angle and one is a national angle, and it's about how Indonesia today deals with this rebellion. At the local level, we see almost a sort of hero veneration. Here are some modern statues of Christina Marta and Patimora, um, which you can find in Ambon. Um, and at that sort of local level, we see them being admired and the rebellion... Um, being cast in a way to 
enforce a sort of local type of nationalism within the broader context of Indonesian nationalism. What makes it problematic is that you, right after the um, Indonesian Republic was established, um, and we had the transfer of sovereignty in 1949, right after that in 1950 you had a rebellion, you had an attempt by people in this area to secede from Indonesia, and some of them wanted to join the Netherlands. Um, so, so this becomes an, an, an awkward rebellion in that context because it kind of reinforces this element where the locals want to be independent rather than Indonesian. So, um, final point is that there's been obviously a counteraction to that, the way of nationalistically looking at that, and that is the Indonesian government moving towards effectively including the heroes of the rebellion into the Indonesian pantheon of heroes. And here you see them um, replicated on a thousand rupiah note. There you've got Thomas Matulesi um, being held up as a national hero. And the very final point I want to make is that uh, from the sort of way of dealing with the rebellion and, and dealing with that history, there has been in the last two or three years a move by Muslim Ambonese and Muslim Indonesians to try to recast this away from the Christian bent that it has on it through Psalm 17 um, and try to reclaim the Patimura rebellion in a Muslim context. And there's been two ways of doing it. One is um, by looking at this figure of Captain Patimura, and there's some exploration going on whether there have been more than one Captain Patimura possibly in the context of this rebellion, so a Muslim one as well. Um, and the other one is to challenge the fact that he was Christian. Um, and most of this is not going on in particularly serious historical circles, but it fits into a broader development in Indonesia when Muslims are trying to reclaim certain parts of their history. Thank you, Chris. I think <coughs> before we start the, uh, the questions, I think we should thank all of our speakers today for uh, fascinating presentations. Questions here. There's a microphone, and that's for the purposes of recording the podcast, so everybody's nice and vocal. So, uh, if you could um, indicate whether or not you want to answer a question with a hand up, and then uh, direct your question to a particular person on the panel or to the panel in general. Thank you very much, Rabindra. Uh, Indonesian was fascinating. Uh, you did mention the reforms the British brought about. You didn't indicate, or you just alluded, were they kept after the Dutch return? Were any of these reforms, they seem to be positive developments, kept by when the Dutch came back? The answer to that one is, is, is very easy, and I apologize. I didn't point that out a bit more. Obviously, no, they were not kept. Um, the Dutch went back. They reintroduced monopoly. They reintroduced corvée labor. They reintroduced the taxes, um, and that caused was, was amongst the grievances. Uh, Dr. Scott, you mentioned that tours were organized to the Waterloo battlefields. Was that the first example of an organized tour? Because I don't think... Thomas Cook um, evolved until about the 1840s. Yes, that's right. I mean, the Cook's tours started later as part of a much more purposeful attempt to capture a kind of middle-class guided tour experience. Um, but guided tours had existed for you know hundreds of years by this point. I mean, the Grand Tour, of course, had been operating in full swing for 
um, over 100 years by the, the point of um, Waterloo. And as part of that process, then individuals set themselves up as tour guides where either they would um, start out with an individual and take them throughout the entirety of their journey or who would base themselves in a location and then take people on tours of a city or a particular you know, object or monument or something in the, in the same way that a modern tour guides do. So, um, no, I mean, Waterloo didn't innovate um, in that sense because obviously the practice was still continuing but I think what's interesting about the Waterloo tourism is quite firstly how quickly it happens I mean we're talking days after the battle had been concluded and um, and, and secondly how different the tourist experience seems to have been for those individuals as opposed to what acceptable tourist behaviour is nowadays because obviously looting bodies on the ground is not something that goes on as Paul pointed out um, in modern tourism and so it's very interesting to me that um, Tourism in this period is much less um, squeamish, for one thing, but also the, 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 the rules and the kind of cultural practices of tourism are still mm-hmm. being formulated as they're being opened up to more and more people. But presumably these white and blue tours were focused on the most central stratum from the people who went on the ground tour. Yes, the question was whether or not um, um, the Waterloo tours were focused on particular social classes. Um, they weren't, and one of the interesting things about the Waterloo Tours is that people from all social classes did them. So whereas an experience like the Grand Tour tended to be class-based and stratified, um, there's records of both aristocrats and um, sort of ordinary working people, or at least those who could afford to go to, to Belgium, um, both participating in the same kinds of tours um, in 1815. Judge on the Hi there. This is a question that kind of falls between Tim and Paul's talks. Um, one of my research specialisms is ekphrasis, or ekphrasis, the practice of writing for or about art. Um, and it's a term that doesn't really crop up a lot in critical circles until the likes of John Keats or Walter Pater. And I'm wondering whether you see any sort of connection between this cultural politics of antagonism or confusion and the sort of inter-artistic relationships that are forming uh, throughout the rest of the 19th century. Tim, perhaps you'd like to start. Um, well, it's a very, it's a very interesting uh, question. Um, I mean, obviously, there is a kind of republic of letters among artists <laughs> at this period that goes beyond the state boundaries and the, you know, the kind of uh, issues of political commemoration that I was, uh, I, I was talking about. Um, uh, and you know there are all sorts of connections that can be made that, that seem quite unlikely at the time. I mean, one of the most interesting ones to me is the way in which Beethoven managed to carry on doing arrangements of Scottish folk songs, which were then sold in Edinburgh during the Napoleonic Wars. You know, and forget about blockades or um, difficulties to do with politics and war. Uh, there are all sorts of ways in which artistic issues and, and, and uh, stylistic debates can carry on over and above the uh, the political uh, circumstances in which the, you know, the, the, uh, the, the rest of the continent uh, is embroiled. Um, but but I, th- I think what, what, you know, one of the most interesting themes here is, is the extent to which artists are seeing uh, that there is a, a need for them to commentate at some stage on political matters or whether they can actually stand aside uh, from it altogether. I mean, one might call it the Jane Austen question, you know, where are the Napoleonic Wars in the, in the Jane Austen uh, novels? Well, in fact, you know, they are there if you look, if you look uh, carefully, you know, and, you know, that, you know in the... 
in, in the deep embedded structures of the um, social interactions, all sorts of issues to do with war are mediated. So, I mean, I think you know you have to look in all sorts of subtle ways for the um, penetration of political and uh, military debates in this area. They don't necessarily come out in the direct literature and art of commemoration, although that is an obvious one to choose from, and as I say, one that is rather problematic during this time. And there seems to be in this period as well a, a sort of a sense of explicit reflection by some artists on the extent to which they should be engaging with contemporary <coughs> events. Um, and I wouldn't want to suggest that's novel, but it does seem to me to be particularly intense after Waterloo. Um, the, the, the instance that strikes me particularly is the fact that um, the British institution, which was a, um, a, a society, if you like, set up in opposition to or to complement the, um, the Royal Academy, that the British institution was more focused on contemporary art. I suppose the analogy would be take Britain and take modern um, nowadays. And the British institution held a competition as to who could paint the best commemorative picture of Waterloo. And there were various criteria set which were oddly focused on things like size. I mean, it had to be physically enormous for some reason. Um, but, and it was eventually won by a painter called James Ward. But th- what's interesting to me about that is it seems to be an explicit institutional attempt to understand how artists can engage with the contemporary world. And there's less retrospection going on in, in immediate... Sort of, I mean, the 18th century was obviously very interested in commemoration, but often in a kind of neoclassical retrospective sense... And I think there's an increasing interest in, in the early 19th century as to how can we react to modernity and how can we be modern artists and what does that modernity involve? Um, which I think is something that, that the events of Waterloo, precisely because they seemed to be quite um, cumulative and quite, it seemed to be a watershed moment, I think, for a lot of artists in various fields, it, it facilitates those kinds of um, reflections and speculations. Um, I had a question for Dr Stock. Um, I was quite struck by the idea of British tourists going across to Waterloo and actually pretending to be Napoleon rather than Wellington. And I was wondering if that was indicative of something wider um, in this period, that a key part of commemoration was actually a sort of fetishisation of Napoleon's genius and the emergence of a, perhaps a cult of Napoleon that we still see the lingering lingerance of today? Oh, yes, very much so. I mean, I, I agree with all of that. I mean, certainly Napoleon has a very um, complicated legacy in, in British culture, and there are large numbers of people who sympathise with him, both politicians <coughs> and artists. Um, one of the interesting things about Waterloo as well is that in contemporary terminology, we often talk about Waterloo as a defeat, you know, somebody meeting their Waterloo. I mean, even the other song is fundamentally about, you know, it's like about failure, isn't it? Um, and so... Well, I'm sorry, I've, I've spoiled the bet. Um, but um, the, you know, what's interesting is that you know, we, we often talk about Waterloo as being Napoleon's defeat rather than somebody else's victory, and that's still continued through to the contemporary world. And part of that, I think, is to do with the enormous pull that Napoleon had on the contemporary imagination that fits in with ideas about heroism and masculinity and then has this very ambiguous legacy moving forward into the 19th century and that a lot of contemporaries were trying to um, tap into. So when you first get the, um, the trope of uh, asylums being full of people who think they're Napoleon, well, no, I don't know. surely that's after all. I don't know. It's the answer. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll put it for a welcome trust. Yes, my question is for Professor Sked. Uh, you speak about... Um, France and Britain as being the so-called liberal powers um, in the aftermath of the Napoleonic War. But 
during this period, France's commercial policy is hardly liberal, um, but yet at the same time, Britain is moving squarely in the direction of uh, free trade. So I'm wondering if you could comment on how the Napoleonic Wars um, uh, contributed to France's commercial policy, which stands in such uh, stark contrast to Britain. And I think it's particularly interesting because we see this growth of tourism during this period, but we don't see much of a pickup in trade between the two countries. Um, well, when I was talking about liberal parts, I wasn't really thinking in terms of economics. They're, they're always in the literature uh, referred to as liberal parts in terms of constitutions. Uh, they're the ones that have parliaments. Uh, they're the powers that uh, are supposedly against uh, suppressing revolution. <coughs> in Castlery and Canning are the ones that stand up for non-intervention, although actually by the eastern powers, although they intervene in Portugal. <coughs> and uh, liberal powers are usually taking... I mean, as I said in my talk, uh, they're not democratic powers because the, the franchise is really very, very small and until 1830, Hungary has a larger franchise than either Britain or France. Um, so, I mean, I, I wasn't sort of <clears throat> emphasising the liberal powers at all, but insofar as the traditional literature distinguishes between the Eastern powers and the liberal powers, they talk about England and France in this context because they're seen as parliamentary powers and that their governments are responsible to parliament, whereas that's not true of Austria, Prussia uh, or Russia. That's the thing. Um, as far as uh, protectionism is concerned, well, Britain obviously eventually uh, has reforms uh, under Sir Robert Peel, etc., and the abolition of the corn laws, but it's really quite late on. Uh, and the French don't start going for free trade until the Cobden Shiva of 1860. So uh, that's really a different issue. I mean, when we're talking about the powers as liberal powers, uh, the literature is talking about parliamentary powers rather than anything else. We have two final questions then. Um, so this is about cultural responses again. Um, so I would say the most famous, um, best-known cultural response in Britain to the Waterloo um, victory was the building of the Waterloo churches. So in 1818, the Parliament granted a million pounds which set up the church building com commissioners and then another 500,000 was given in 1824. So I wondered whether this idea of fusing um, the victory with national identity and Christianity can be seen in other cultural forms. Thank you. I don't want to take that one. <laughs> in, in Russia, I can simply say that the Kazan Cathedral, for example, is, is, oh, okay. is using that blame there. I mean, uh, <laughs> yes, I mean, I think that's... that's that, that's totally right, and I mean that is obviously a major part of the commemorative project, if you like. Um, and what it was interesting me a little more in my in my talk was the ways in which commemorative projects deviate from that. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm not disputing that that took place and is the main thrust of of how commemorative projects were undertaken with regard to Waterloo. Um, I was just trying to sort of complicate that picture a little bit, but I don't disagree with what anything with anything you said. Thank you. Very good point. Yes, fine. I think this is addressed to uh, Professor Sked. Um, in your talk, um, you referred to the wars of liberation, and that's a phrase that has particular re uh, resonance, I think, uh, in the context of German history, if I'm right. Um, does Waterloo play a significant role in the way that Germans, particularly in the first half of the 19th century with the growth of German nationalism, look back at the Napoleonic War, 
Or am I right to think that it's more the Battle of Leipzig, which took place in 1813? Yeah, uh, well, the Battle of Waterloo, in terms of Prussian, German historiography, so reinforced uh, the, the historical tradition of Prussia that uh, really the Wars of Liberation had everything to do with Prussia and that Austria and Russia were kind of minor allies in the coalition, whereas in fact the leadership <coughs> was Austrian. And if, if everything really centres around in German historiography, the role of Field Marshal Blücher. And Blücher's army was two-thirds Russian, although this is never actually pointed out in German historiography. Uh, and, and Blücher did have a distinguished career, but I mean the strategy laid down was laid down by Rudetsky in the Wars of Liberation. But uh, the, the, the Prussians who remember between eight, 1795 uh, and 1805 had sat out the French Revolution and Napoleonic Wars, they'd be neutral and, if anything, pro-French. Uh, suddenly it got hugely defeated, I mean, devastated by Napoleon in 1867, uh, and Prussia was almost wiped off the map. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the rest of German Europe realised that the Prussians <laughs> really didn't have a very heroic tradition at all. And then once uh, they got involved in the wars of liberation, the, uh, the impulse, uh, later on, of Trajka, another who was writing this up, uh, the, the impulse was to play up the Prussian role and claim everything depended on Blücher and Rudetsky, Schwarzenberg, the Russian generals were neither here nor there. And uh, since Blücher was both at Waterloo and Leipzig, yes, it reinforced this very partisan uh, tradition in German Prussian historiography that uh, Napoleon was really defeated by Prussia and nobody else had much to do with it. I think that's enough time. We, we have to, of course, finish the, uh, the event. I think there's a lecture coming on top of us. I'd like to first of all thank all the panellists once again.